All right, we're in 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel. Oz Guinness, in one of his books, uh, begins at the very beginning of sharing a story about a speaker at a speech in Oxford. And this speaker begins by saying, As you know, I have been very fortunate in my career and I've made a lot of money. Far more than I ever dreamed of, far more than I could ever spend, far more than my family needs. The speaker was a prominent businessman and, and he was at a conference near Oxford University and the strength and grit showed uh, in his tone and his face as he was sharing with this group of people. But soon his humanity showed and a, and a tear started rolling down his cheek and he said, to be honest, one of my motives for making so much money was simple to have the money to hire people to do what I don't like doing. But there's one thing I've never been able to hire anyone to do for me, to find my own sense of purpose and fulfillment. I'd give anything to discover that. I thought that was sad. And then it caused me to think through this in in light of what we're going to look at this morning and to ask the question right in the onset, friend, what is the purpose of your life? Are you doing what you're meant to do? You know, at some point in each of our lives, we are confronted with that question. Many, many times maybe. What is my purpose? Why am I here? As modern people in the 21st century, we are on a search for significance. We, we want to live on purpose. We want to make a difference in the world. We want to leave a legacy. You know, as teenagers who are ready to leave behind the shackles of high school, freedom calls to us with a crazy amount of choices. Who will we be? Who, what will we do? And then the 20s come, and, and it brings this new sense of meaning as the world tends to become a little smaller because we can go into it but we're chilled with the thought that choosing one path then eliminates all the other paths. And then we hit our 30s, and it brings the daily grind of work, possibility with a family to have fun with, but the allurement to to make money, to pay your bills, to secure your future grows stronger and stronger as our purpose. And then people face this even in midlife. I, I realized this summer that I'm in midlife, 45. Shocking. And, and the questions now of the mismatch of their gifts and their work reminds them daily that they might be square pegs and round holes. And the questions linger in our mind. Can I keep doing this for the rest of my life? You know, mothers feel the pressure of purpose when their children grow up and move out. What is their higher purpose now? Fathers struggle with this, with purpose when they have daughters and their daughters move out and they're led by another man. What is my purpose? People face the question of purpose with every transition in life, from moving homes to switching jobs to breakdowns in families, breakdowns in marriages to crises that come in health. And changes feel longer and worse than the change itself because transition challenges our sense of purpose and meaning in life. And then those in later years, they they face the same questions of purpose. Was it worth it? Were were their successes real? And were the successes worth the trade-offs? You know, having gained the whole world and all, all it has to offer, have we sold our souls cheaply and missed the point of life? As Walker Percy wrote, you can get all A's and still flunk life. Do you know the purpose of your life? You know, when we come to Second Samuel chapter 2 and 3, In four and five, we're going to cover four chapters this morning, we come to this question of purpose. We we come to characters, and there's plenty of them here, who are striving. And I want you to look for this as we walk through this this chapter. And we'll, we'll be done in less than an hour, I promise. We'll move quickly. But I want you to look at these characters as we look at them, as they're searching. And you see what their purpose is. 
how they live their life. We have Abner, Ishbosheth, some great names, by the way, Asiel, Joab, Banna, Rechab, all of these men and a few supporting actors along the way. Each one tempt King David to allow them to define who he should be and what his purpose should be. The problem is that we will see very quickly that power in the hands of human beings is never completely wise and good. So here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust for this morning. Our lives only make sense when we place our hope in God's purpose for his own glory. Our lives only make sense when we place our hope in God's purpose for his own glory. The sermon is, is entitled Tale of Two Kingdoms, and we have two kings. It's the first point, two commanders. Second point, two fools. The third point, and then the fourth is for the sake of his people. And, and I won't, just so you know, I won't cover every verse because there's a lot in there, but you will be helped by having a Bible open. If not, you will get lost. You'll daydream and think about football and dinner and all this stuff. Have a Bible open and follow with me as we walk through this. And we're going to race our way here from 2 Samuel 2 all the way through the fifth chapter. So first we see two kings. 2 Samuel 2 verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also. This is significant here because David is is now fulfilling the promises made to Abraham by going to this city of Hebron. Through David, God's people, they'll live in the land under God's blessing now. David has broken off completely, as we we saw earlier in in chapter 1, from the Philistines. He's making new beginnings now in Judah. And and Hebron was a key location in the story of the patriarchs and the place of their burial. You can read that in the Old Testament. Hebron, you could say, is where Israel's life in the land of God's promises began. And God's choice of this location links David's story to Abraham's story. It's all on purpose. God is the author. It's also significant noticing David's response and what he should do. Where does he go? Who does he go to to find the answers and what he should do? He goes to the Lord, which is significant. Notice that because as we walk through the rest of these characters, you don't see that again. But David goes to God. And then verse 3, And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone in his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. What we see here is the long-awaited coronation of the rightful king. It's happening right now. For the first time, God's chosen king visibly is ruling on earth. Unlike Saul, who was given to the people in response to their rebellious demand for an earthly king, like other nations, now David was chosen to be king for God and for God's purposes. And we see that his first act is to show mercy to the men of Jabesh-Gilead for their concern for Saul in verses 3 through 7. You could read that. So we come through the end of verse 7, and, and when we read, I want you to understand, when we read Old Testament accounts, it's easy to, to, to seem like this happened and then this happened. But between verse 7 and verse 8, it's probably a number of years that transpired. So verse 7 happens, and then verse 8 comes, and so we will see the response of this coronation of David. Uh, After the death of Saul, the news spreads to the people of Judah that they finally recognize David as their king, and the news is spread now down to, to Abner, who was the commander with Saul. And we quickly realize how he stands in relation to this new king. Look at verse eight. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanahim, and he made him king over Gilead. And the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron was over the, over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So what we hear, see here is the promotion of Ishbosheth as king was not only a continuation of the hostility of Saul towards David, 
but also an open act of rebellion against God, who had rejected Saul and chose David to be prince over Israel. Saul, even as you go into 1 Samuel, if you go back and read, Saul was convinced of the appointment of David. He didn't want to admit it, and he didn't want to give up the throne, but he was convinced that David was the heir to the throne. And now Abner, the commander, is flying in the face of God's choice king. And he joins Herod and Pontius Pilate, who do not want this man to reign over me. And Abner here is drawing a line in the sand. Ishbosheth will be his king. He won't submit to David. He won't submit to God. And, and we begin to see a little clearly Abner's purpose in his life. So we have two kings, David and Ishbosheth. Second, we have two commanders, the second point. We learn more about Abner here in this section, and specifically we'll learn of his failures as, as commander. He, he, he attacks and he'll fail. He'll plot and he'll fail. He'll negotiate and he'll fail. And then we learn of Joab, the other commander, and his failures. Look at verse 12, chapter 2. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, and the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zerah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Seems like this is going to be some friendly competition. It doesn't go that way. Verse 15, then they arose and passed over by number 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. In a matter of moments, 24 men are dead. The battle was fierce that day, it says in verse 17, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. It wasn't just this time, it continued on. What happens here at Gibeon? Well, it's, it's important to understand that Abner is the aggressor. He is the one that instigated this whole affair. It's, I believe, Abner's deliberate attempt to impose northern might on David's Judean kingdom. Abner is on the attack. But his men are beaten by the servants of David. And Joab's men will not let things go. Verse 18. And the three sons of Zerah, Zerah, by the way, was David's sister, were there. Joab... Uh, Abishai and Asiel. Now, Asiel was a swift of foot like a wild gazelle. That'd be a great description. Wouldn't it be love to be called that? You're swift of, all right, we'll keep going. And Asiel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, is it you, Asiel? And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asiel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asiel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all came to the place where Asiel had fallen and died and stood still. What we read here, the narrator is just informing us, Asiel continues this battle and he chases Abner and Abner warns him, you need to stop. And he doesn't. And the fight continues, verse 24. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner and the sun was going down. They came to the hill of Amaya, which lies before Gaia on the hill to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. You know, in other words, he, he's saying, you started this, Abner. This is your fault. With your speech this morning, if you hadn't spoken, suggesting this competition, then, then we wouldn't have to need to stop now, because it would have never begun. 
And it's surprising to read of Abner's attack on David's army. Abner will go to great lengths to try to impose his authority, even at the risk of his men's lives. He doesn't care. Abner is not far from the rest of us. We share an Abner's nature that harbors sin's stupidity. This story teaches us that it is possible to know the truth of God's word and not embrace the truth. To quote the truth, but not submit our lives to the truth. To hold to the truth and yet at the same time assault the truth. And then we move to chapter 3. We love to pretend in our lives that we are in control. But the truth is we're utterly dependent on someone else. Abner has not come to that understanding. Verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. See, Abner was the man who made things happen. He made Ishbosheth king earlier in chapter 2. He began the competition with Joab that ultimately, if you read through the rest of the chapter, killed 360 of his men. But he would be the one, as we'll see, that moves to make David king over Israel. But here, as we read, the, the house of Saul, Saul's kingdom is growing weaker. But the house of David is growing stronger. And Abner's going to do something about this. Before we find out what he's going to do, the narrator gives a description of how the house of David is growing stronger. It says in verse 2, And sons were born to David at Hebron. I'm not going to read those names. You can have fun with that over lunch. But there's a number of women listed here. And what are we to make of these relationships that David has with all these women? Friends, we need to understand that just because the scripture here is silent does not mean it endorses this behavior. God's purpose from the very beginning in Genesis was for one man and one woman to marry for life. That was God's purpose. And it should be the the basis of our understanding of relationships that God encourages this. As we find out in this book, it, it never goes well when man steps out of God's boundaries. This is another instance. The narrator is just stating a fact. He's not encouraging this. And we will find out in this book how poorly it goes for David. And as you keep reading the Bible, it goes even worse for his son Solomon. Well, he continues in verse 6. While there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David... Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? You need to note, Ishbosheth didn't ask whether Abner had done this or not. The implication is that Abner had taken the concubine as an act of rebellion. In this culture, that was a public, bold challenge to the throne. Abner's response was, in fact, to confirm the allegation was true. He doesn't deny it. And Saul's concubine was his first step in taking the throne from Ishbosheth. And, and, and I need to point this out again, and we're not going to camp here, but this is yet another instance in this book of a man using a woman for his mere selfish gain. Friends, you need to understand this is wicked and it's repeated over and over and over. We see this in Scripture so clearly and we've seen it in our own culture. And God will speak to this. God will deal with this. Well, Abner doesn't like to be accused of this. He doesn't deny it. But his response in verse 8 is that he's very angry over the words of Ishbosheth. And he says, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I kept showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends. And have I not given you into the hand of David? And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. 
God do so to Abner, and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. I find this admission by Abner very interesting. Abner is making it very clear that he knew that the Lord had established David as the future king and had sworn it to him. So why is Abner given his support to the house of Saul and established Ishbosheth as king when Saul died? Why did he continue to prop up this false king all these years if he knew that David was the rightful king established by God? He did this because it helped him. And when those pathways begin to close in on him, he pivots and switches paths. See, Abner, don't, don't be fooled. My first reading of this whole story, I thought Abner was a good guy. My initial reading. And then as I dug in, I find out he's not a good guy. In fact, he's a bad guy. It comes across like he's just this innocent guy. He's trying to do good things. No, no, no. He is opposed to God. See, Abner didn't want to expand the kingdom of God because he believed God's word. He, he wanted to expand the kingdom of God because he wanted to manipulate the situation for his own advantage. And so what do we see of Abner's purpose in life? It's to make himself great by any means necessary. He's going to do what he wants to do so that he can have the advantage. If, if this king Ishbosheth wasn't going to roll over and play dead, the next best option for Abner was to swing his support over to David and see where that takes him now. Abner's story relates to a story I read about a little boy named Willie who had crawled out onto the ice and rescued a playmate who had fallen through the ice and who was drowning. And he pulled him out, and praise and admiration were being heaped on this little boy. And a lady asked him, tell us, my boy, how you were brave enough to risk your own life to save your friend. And in between the heavy breaths, Willie shot back, I had to. He had my skates on. This is what we read of Abner. He doesn't care one bit about David. He doesn't care about establishing the throne of God and that God would have right, rightful rule through David because he chose. You know, he doesn't care one bit. If it benefits him, then he'll do it. And when it stops benefiting him, he would move to another way. Abner, like so many people today, do not want to believe the word of God that they've heard. He really didn't want Saul's kingdom to be transferred to David because he might be hurt in the process. That's why he raises up Ishbosheth to make him king. But when it's now expedient for him to gain something for it, he's all for it. Let's just shift things. See, Abner was on Abner's side. He wasn't on David's side or Ishbosheth. It was about him. And how do we know this? Well, he, he never makes any confession of his own failure. He doesn't go to David and says, I, you know, I was wrong for making Ishbosheth king. I, I should have come. I should have brought us together to gain as one, as one nation. They're never spoken. Those words are never spoken by Abner. He isn't that type of guy. Instead, Abner presents himself as the power broker who can give the land as he chooses. Verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, which is interesting. He doesn't go through Abner, he's going to go around Abner. Sends messages to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, 
Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahrum. Then Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. I want to mention again, this is not the point, but how awful the circumstance is for Michael. It seems that David is asking for her, not as much as a romantic suggestion, but it's political. Just like Rizpah earlier, we read of a woman being used by men for, to gain power and control. This, this will continue to be a serious issue in the life of David. And, and poor Paltiel, the husband. You know, after David is sent off and he leaves to go with the Philistines, she remarries, and this poor guy has his wife stripped away. You know, it's a, it's a sad situation, all of which comes back at the feet of Saul. Saul did this to begin with. And we see the, that his daughter is used as a pawn, and it's tragic. Then verse 17, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will rise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord and King that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. The wheels are set in motion now for this merger of two kingdoms. It seems as though Abner is getting his way. But Joab, the commander of David's army, doesn't know anything about this. Look at verse 23. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king and he, was, and he has let him go and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king, went to David, and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. Joab here strongly addresses his king with a threatening question. What are you doing? What have you done? This, this implies that the one addressed has done something terribly wrong. And, and Joab confesses concern for David's safety here. But more likely, I believe, he's worried that Abner's going to take his spot. And do you remember earlier what happened? Who did Abner kill? Joab's brother. Man, revenge. It's a strong urge. You ever felt that way before? You don't have to tell me now, but be honest with yourself. You know, you've been wronged, and you begin to scheme now, revenge, to get this, this person took what was mine whether it's a child in my home who doesn't get the treat they wanted and their sister took it, or it's at work and someone has swooped in and taken that bonus or whatever it is in work. Revenge. This is Joab. Joab sees David as his gentleness as, as, as an issue. He's, he's naive, at worst, culpable and weak and foolish. And Joab's not going to stand for it. We're going to learn about Joab's purpose in a minute. Verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Syria. David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asiel, his brother. Joab had assured David that Abner was coming to Hebron to deceive the king, and now Joab deceives Abner by calling him back by the order of the king, and then kills him in cold blood. There was no intention to have a meeting. Joab brought him there to settle the score. 
And it's interesting to note what, what Joab had done here was precisely what David, at great cost, refused to do. If we go back into 1 Samuel over and over again, David refuses to get revenge. Joab would have seen this. He lived this, and it had no effect on him. When given the opportunity, Joab goes after Abner. And in essence, Joab is no different than Abner. His purpose in life was to keep all that he had worked for, no matter what. But we are far more subtle than Joab. You know, the disciples struggled with this too, this idea of this battling back and forth. We're going to talk about it later in the sermon. But do you remember the battle on the night of the Last Supper? The disciples battled together. Do you remember what they were arguing about? Who's the greatest? You know, reading that passage, it's always fascinating to me. Jesus tells them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to die for you, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. They're so much like us, it's scary. And I fear we are more concerned about our place in the kingdom than the honor of God's name. David responds, verse 28, chapter 3 still. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord and for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asiel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn out before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. David goes to great lengths to show that he is rejecting Joab's action and that he had no part of it. David publicly confirms his innocence and calls down a scathing curse on Joab and his family. And yet, my observation of this is David messed up. I believe this was political on David's part, but he fails to finally deal with Joab. He curses him, but he doesn't remove him as commander. He disowns his actions, but he really doesn't punish him like he has in the past in chapter 1, and like he will in chapter 4. And we see this inaction of David to take care of his own house. And it'll come back to bite him. We'll see it in chapter 13. Well, we've, we've made two points through. We've looked at the, seen the two kings, we've seen the two commanders. Third, we see the two fools. We have seen the political and military effort like that of Abner and Joab and the clever grasping of opportunity and even strong decisive action were not keys to secure position in God's kingdom or David's kingdom. And over and again, those that sought to manipulate their way into allegiance were not powerful enough to secure or even overthrow David's kingdom. And why is this? It's because David's kingdom wasn't his kingdom. It was God's. God had established this. Human ingenuity and human scheming will never overthrow God's kingdom. And it will not establish his kingdom either. And yet we see in chapter 4 that men still don't understand this. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. When Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel were dismayed. Literally, the text says, his hands became slack. He lost his grip. Even though Abner terrified him, I'm sure, he was nothing without a strong man to support him. Verse 2, now Saul's, sons, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one is Banna, and the name of the other is Rechab. Then jumped on to verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. 
Why, is, why does the, the narrator include that little nugget in there? I believe simply he's trying to say that no one else would be looking to Jonathan's son to, to take over for Ishbosheth. That he was not going to rule in his stead. There was no one on the line if something happened to Ishbosheth. And so enters into the story Rechab and Banna, who make their purpose very clear of what their life is going to be. Verse 5 of the sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, Rechab and Banna set out, and about the heat of the day they came into the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest, his siesta. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay in the bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. They killed a man while he is napping. This was not an act of war. This was an assassination. And these two come with blood on their hands and theology on their lips, expecting that the later will magically bleach out the former. Murder always seems more pleasant when wrapped in religious considerations. And Rechab and Banna's purpose in life was to secure a place for them in the kingdom. But David is not fooled. We must be aware when explaining things theologically that we're simply using God, using him as an argument to manipulate things for our own convenience, to keep from submitting to his grace or his law. It's tempting to use God's word for our own selfish gain. That's what we see here with these two men. And David answers, verse 9. He answers Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite. He says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. In other words, he says, I don't need your help. God is on my side. And in verse 10, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziglag. He's going back into chapter 1. How much more, verse 11, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? See, David never sought to take Saul's life. Why? Because the Lord is the one who has redeemed his life out of every adversity. David didn't try to seize control because he trusted God. He never thought he needed to act unrighteously or unfaithfully in order to take hold of the kingship that God had promised him. And why is that? Because David was convinced that God would take care of it. And he trusted him. And he would wait for the Lord to give him the kingdom in his time. And he refused to take it by his own hand. You need to notice, I mentioned this earlier, do you see the difference of David's response to these two men versus Joab? It's significant. They're both just as guilty of what they've done. But David's response is different. And that'll come back. Well, what can we learn from these two idiots? We should never take or strategize in ways that compromise righteousness, even if you can imagine all the good that will come from small, unrighteous action. It's never worth it, friends. It's never worth it. These two men are putting a spin on their treachery to suggest that David is indebted to them for for making this finishing touch and bringing the kingdoms together. But David's not a halfwit. He sees right through it. And he deals with them swiftly, just like he did with the the Amalekite in chapter 1. 
Verse 12, And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. I know some of you like to do drawings when I'm preaching through a series. I don't want to see your drawings during this series. It is gruesome. In the end, we see the foolishness of these two men who believed that they could be power brokers to secure something for themselves. They fail to understand God. They fail to understand David as king. And in all this, as, we, as we've made our way through chapter 4, we come to the last point and we see, we will see clearly David's purpose. And I believe we'll see our purpose. Fourth is all for the sake of his people. We won't go through all of chapter 5. We'll, we'll scoot through. But chapter 5 is a collage of stories, okay? It's not sequential in some ways. It's just kind of given us fuller detail of David in the beginning of his uh, kingdom in Israel. But look at verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be my shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah 33 years. We need to see how God's promise has proved faithful in the face of intense opposition. Chapters and chapters and chapters have happened since 1 Samuel 18. And, And what we're reading is that the certainty of God's promises are being fulfilled Friends, the long story short of the Bible is God will do what he says he will do. He is faithful. His promises are not stamped with an expiration date in small print. What you're reading here is God doing exactly what he said he will do. If you're here, friends, and you're you're wondering that God won't come through at the end, you're wrong. He will. And he is worthy of our trust. David's not done. Verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. They're being sarcastic, thinking that David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said in that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, quote, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Just so you know, David's not mocking blind and lame people here, all right? He's using the sarcastic remark of the Jebusites. Of, of God's purpose to have his city. And that's what happens. You can read more about it. You can do a Google search because of how the fortified city, and I'm not going to spend that time, but it's interesting. Through the cisterns, you said, that's how they got there, through the water supply. David's resolve to seize Jerusalem with both political and spiritual. Politically, his newly reunited, reunited nation needed a capital that would serve as the true center for the government. And spiritually, David sought to take Jerusalem because the Jebusite fortress was a national disgrace, a symbol of Israel's failure to complete the conquest that was commanded by the Lord in Judges chapter 1. It records of the people of Benjamin who didn't follow through with what God had commanded. They feared their enemies and they fell back from completing what God had told them to do. So when we read they went to go into Jerusalem, we read of of David fulfilling what God had commanded. And and they mock him. They're they're convinced that they could withhold any attack. They don't realize that their mocking of David would anger the Lord and the Lord will deal with his enemies. And then he says in verse 10, And David became greater and greater for the Lord. The God of hosts was with him. 
And the expansion of the title here, the Lord, the God of hosts, emphasizes the majesty of the king behind the king. It was simply because David committed himself in faith to the Lord, waiting for God to act and to follow through with his promises. That's why he experienced these blessings. And then in verse 12, look at verse 12. This is, this is what we've been driving at all morning, okay? So don't check out yet. We're almost done. But verse 12 is the point. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Friends, this is the point. This is the point of the whole sermon. Right here. David's life only makes sense when we see his place in God's purposes. David knew that the Lord had established him as king. He trusted the promises of God concerning him and him coming to the throne. And he understood the current circumstances of God's faithfulness to the promises. It wasn't Abner or Joab or Rechab or Banna who established David's kingdom. No, it was the Lord who did this. And here's the thing I want you to see. The Lord did not give David a throne so he could act like a king. He didn't give him a throne so he could be king like the other nations. It was so that he could function as a servant toward his people. Kingship was not an end in itself, but a means to a greater end, to the benefit of God's people. David was over Israel for Israel. That is the point of his life. That was the purpose. We see the same mindset when we turn over to the New Testament of our Lord, don't we? In the Gospels, Mark 10, and Jesus calls the disciples to himself. And he says, right here, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here's the catch here, right here. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you think about your purpose in life as a means to God getting the glory in service for other people? Is that the purpose of your life? Do you do what you do in your life for you only or for the benefit of others? Or do you think of people in your life as only a means to your desired end? Are, are the circumstances of your life only there to push forward your agenda and your success? I mean, haven't we seen this two distinct thought process here between Abner and, and, and Joab and, and these two idiots, right? We see this as what they wanted, right? Their purpose was them. And then we read in verse 12, this is why David existed. It wasn't for his own glory. He wasn't made king to be kingly and to lord it over. But he was made king for God's glory, to serve other people. See, the role of this shadow king, David, wasn't for himself. The whole point is, was, it was for others. And that's what our role in life should be. And it's displayed so beautifully in our Lord, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be served, God came in the flesh not to be served but to serve. And then he describes his life as a ransom. A ransom represented the payment of a price required for deliverance from various forms of bondage, captivity, and condemnation that were common in those days. And what he's telling us today, friend, we're all in bondage. We're all captive in the slave market of sin until Jesus frees us. 
John Stott writes that the emphasis of the ransom image is on our sorry state, indeed our captivity to sin, which made the act of divine rescue necessary. And we don't naturally understand this. We don't want to understand this. We're so captive to our sin that we can't understand this. Jesus has to step in. And I've said this before. Listen, Jesus is saying this, and what happens in the disciples in that room? Do you remember what happens? They begin to argue who is the greatest. They're so captive to their sin that they can't even see that a ransom must be paid. And the price, what's the price? The price is the life of God's sinless son. And who is it paid for? Who is it paid to? It's paid to the Father. Who is the offended party? For the purpose of setting us free. Setting us free from sin. See, what we read here and what we understand in the gospel is God accomplishes what is humanly impossible by sending and sacrificing his own son for us. And do you understand and know the purpose of your life? It isn't to make a name for yourself. It isn't to have security and comfort by earning lots of money and having a nicer home. That is not the purpose of your life. It isn't so that you can build a life and impress others. The Bible tells us very plainly that our purpose is to know God to worship him, and to serve others. That is how we're to live. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, that's the first step. To turn from your sins and to trust in him alone. And I encourage you to come find me. Uh, Find another Christian in your row and, and ask them, how do I become a Christian? Kids, if you've heard this a hundred times, I understand I was in your shoes too as a kid. Ask mom and dad today, how can I become a Christian? What does it look like to follow Christ? They would love to talk to you about this. And then, after we submit our life to Christ, go spend the next 50, 60, 70 years serving others. That's the purpose. Well, I won't finish the chapter, but I do need to say this. The frank honesty of the Bible's account and the lives of people is often astonishing because verse 12 gripped me all week and then we come to verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. We read of the strength of David and then we read of the stupidity of David. Very simply. And, and, and the thing I want to say, and I said this at the very beginning, you need to understand, David is not your hero. He is not the hero of the story. He is a shadow king pointing to our hero, Jesus Christ. And he resorts here to living like the surrounding world and he will pay the price. We're taken to great heights in verse 12 and then brought back down to reality in verse 13. That's how life is here on earth. And then the chapter ends, and I'll, I'll let you read that and talk about that over lunch. David, Conquest of the Philistines. It's a good section. I'll encourage you to read that as we end.